Welcome, B2B startups, changeups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Darren Kreck, Senior UI Designer at Amazon. Thanks for joining us. Sure. So um, let's back it up because when we, when we met, you were at State Department, and it was mm-hmm. right around the time when there was um, a, a lot of commotion uh, happening in, um, in the Gulf states, in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what was going on and what your role in the whole operation was? Sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to oversell my role in all of it. So uh, basically my role at the State Department was uh, essentially bringing new media into um, kind of the practice of our diplomats. So primarily focusing on our embassies and consuls overseas. So uh, they've pretty much always been involved in what we called public diplomacy, which was essentially uh, there's there's kind of typical diplomacy, which is more government to government, and then there's public diplomacy, which is more kind of government to people or connecting people to people um, with specific objectives. Um, so there's obviously very traditional uh, mechanisms of that. You especially saw that in like the Cold War, um, you know, with things like um, you know radio broadcasting and so on, distributing. Um, printed information and so on. And the idea was to kind of modernize some of that. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media channels were starting to grow in prominence at the time. So the idea was to uh, help our missions abroad be able to understand and use that technology. So that was kind of the backdrop for where the the Arab Spring was occurring. Um, My personal role in it was overall pretty minor. So... um, you know, I was at the State Department at the time. I was helping to kind of interpret some of the, the things that were happening from my perspective uh, as using these tools. But, you know, with that being said, you know, so much of this is ultimately you have to understand it through the particular situations in those locations. And, and a lot of the use of these social media tools were ultimately that, like it was tools. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of pluses of social media and obviously plenty of negatives um, that I'm sure we'll talk about as well, but you know, it's good for kind of getting word out, organizing very quickly and so on. Um, and so, you know, I was essentially kind of doing some internal advising on that, but that was relatively minor. Um, I did travel to um, Egypt and Jordan uh, just before the Arab spring and met with some of the um, activists that were, um, essentially starting to draw attention to a lot of the, the problems that were happening in these places. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say that they necessarily needed our help, uh, particularly in terms of the social media side. So, you know, if they, they were, they weren't, they didn't need any, or certainly weren't getting any help, any help from me. Um, you know, I think they certainly needed a lot more help from a much higher level perspective, but that's kind of another, another story. Talk to us about um, the technological sophistication of the activists that you met with. Are these people who are, you know, all over smartphones or who have some maybe some coding experience? Um, mm. How 
how um, pliable mm -hmm. are they with respect to technology? Uh, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't. I would hesitate to say I got super deeply into that. I mean, I, I don't get the sense they were necessarily technical from like a coding perspective, but I think they really understood um, how to build these networks out and to and how to craft uh, messages that would be influential. Um, so I, I think they, they certainly had some of the soft skills really well, and, and a lot of them had kind of grown up, you know, they were in many cases fairly young. Um, so they, you know, were maybe not digital natives at that point, because that was still a number of years ago. Uh, but they certainly had grown up with kind of the genesis of a lot of these tools. So I mean, they were pretty savvy uh, in terms of the technology and the messaging. Um, you know, in terms of kind of raw technical skills, I didn't get a sense that they, they had that or they even necessarily needed it. So, so as you see it now, sort of in retrospect, what is the role of UI in mm. accommodating uh, the activists' use of social media to spread their word? Sure. Uh, I think that's kind of complex. Um, hmm. I mean, it, so I guess there's a bunch of different levels, right? So there's there's kind of the actual interface of the tool. Um, and then there's kind of the underlying kind of plumbing, for lack of a better word, just sort of like the, the, the nature of these tools. So, you know, in terms of the UI, um, I mean, kind of the benefit was that a bunch of these companies were pretty well funded, so they typically could hire fairly talented people. So the UIs were generally, and the UX was generally pretty user-friendly. So I think that helped to make it really accessible, um, even to people who were maybe not, as I said, uh, that's like technologically savvy. Like they, you know, they didn't have to figure out like IRC or figure out how to do uh, crazy Usenet things and so on. Um, so I think it opened it up to a broader uh, audience that could then utilize these tools. Um, you know, and certainly from kind of the plumbing of these these tools, you know, the fact that um, you know messages can spread very quickly. Uh, one of the kind of pluses and negatives of these tools is that uh, compelling messages typically spread the most quickly, which can be a good thing, can also be a bad thing. So I would say it's kind of those two levels that were most beneficial to kind of the, the messages they were spreading. How important is UI to scaling the adoption of a social network? Uh, I think um, I mean, I guess fundamentally, the, if, if it's going to be a difficult UI to use, then there's going to be some limits on the amount of people that will pick it up. Uh, now, that being said, having a confusing UI is not necessarily a bad thing. So um, you, know, you look at Snapchat, for example, which has certainly in the last, the, the, most of the years it's been in existence, actually has a fairly complicated UI, um, not necessarily because it needs it, but just sort of that's how it's evolved. And some people have viewed it as a plus. It kept older people like me uh, from using it. So I think it depends a lot more on kind of the, the culture that's adopting it and the particular tool. You know, certainly anything that's easier to use is going to be, is, is more likely to be widely adopted. So, um, you know, if, if we're kind of talking about the, <clears throat> the Arab Spring and some of the challenges that these activists were facing, though, that's also a double-edged sword. Um, 
you know, I think one of the things with Facebook, for example, is that they haven't always had great privacy restrictions. So it's been pretty easy for uh, things that you don't want to leak out in the public to then do so. Um, so there always is a risk with um, some of the security concerns here that something that's too easy to use, too easy to share can actually be a detriment because it means that people who you don't necessarily want to have reading all this information is also reading it. So I think, I think it's complicated uh, in terms of whether or not these things are good things or bad things, depending on the audience. At the, uh, at the time when you were in Jordan and Egypt, this was mm. before the Tahir Square um, uprising? Yep. And it, was this before the street vendor um, set himself on fire? Uh, I don't think I can look at the timing. I'm pretty sure it was, though. I think it was several months before that. What action, if any, did State Department take as a result of that experience mm. um, Ooh, with, with yeah. respect primarily to how it uh, uses technology to communicate? Sure. Uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I'm honestly probably not the best person to ask about that. Um, you know, if, if we took any particular response to that specific event, I'm not aware of it. Um, you know, certainly as the protests kind of spiraled from there, we certainly were paying attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, a lot of, so part of the way the State Department works is that uh, typically the particular actions like these, um, when they relate to specific locations, they're usually either handled, handled by the mission in the country, so the embassies and consulates, um, and then also by the, the bureau. So in this case, it would be um, the NEA bureau, which is Near East Affairs, which is kind of an archaic title. But so basically, um, another way to put that is a lot of the work that would have been done in these areas were taken like in those particular parts of the State Department. Um, I certainly was in conversation with them about social media and so on, but ultimately it was pretty limited. So most of the actions would have been taken by them. What about your experience at State Department prepared you for your position uh, at Amazon? Sure. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I would certainly say there's kind of two parts of that. One of them is that... Um, you know, as, as cool as the things we were doing in the State Department, as much attention that they received, I think ultimately they were not terribly sophisticated. Um, you know, when I got to, so I didn't go straight from uh, the State Department to Amazon. I worked for HTC, used to be prominent making cell phones for, for like a hot second. Um, and the, the complexity of going from, of the work they were doing going from uh, the State Department to HTC was pretty significant. Uh, just in terms of the sophistication of the tools that we had and the marketing strategies and things like that. Uh, and then Amazon is, of course, another higher level. So, you know, it's good to get some of the basics of the State Department. Um, I think certainly it looks good on my resume, <laughs> if I'm being somewhat facetious. Uh, but uh, I, I will say, though, that kind of on the positive, um, there were a number of things that were just good experiences in general working in the State Department. Certainly one of those is working in cross-cultural situations. Um, so as much as there's talk about social media being beneficial for connecting people, I mean, ultimately the best experiences you're going to have and the most um, deep connections you're going to make are, are going to be in person. Not necessarily universally, but generally speaking, it's, it's easier to build those connections. So 
working at the State Department allowed me to go to places like Indonesia, go to uh, places like the Middle East. Um, so it allowed me to have those international experiences, which it then ended up being very useful working for HTC, which was a Taiwanese company. Uh, but, you know, I was working with people from around the world and certainly at Amazon as well. Um, also, of course, very, very international, um, has subdivisions around the world. So, you know, having that international experience, I think, has been very beneficial. And I think a lot of that sort of foundational experience I gained at the State Department. Um, what at the state in your how many years were you at state? I'm there, I think about four years. It was just shy of four years. Any big surprises? Mm. Uh, let's see. Um, I guess. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I, I mean, it was it was also new. So I think to some extent, every day was a surprise. Um, so I, I think one of the things was was I guess probably the most surprising thing was was again a lot of this technology was pretty new at the time, and you know in some cases we were doing things on Facebook and Twitter and so on, which was kind of the you know the bleeding edge of a lot of this. But like we also um, when Obama went to Ghana, we did. Um, a campaign where we solicited questions for him to then answer. And we solicited those via like short codes and long codes, uh, just in SMS in Africa. Um, and it was really awesome to, you know, get a question from some random person in Kenya or Ghana, and then be able to, you know, put that into um, something that the president, President Obama would then answer on radio. So like being able to build those connections was pretty awesome um, and something that uh, I, I haven't experienced anywhere else. So, and especially being very early into that, that was really neat. Uh, so I think I was, I think I was very lucky in terms of the timing. Obviously part of it was certainly that Obama was very popular uh, globally. So we were able to do things like that. Um, yeah, I would say that's the main stuff. Um, you know, in terms of surprising, you know, the bureaucracy was was a challenge, um, kind of for good and for not so good reasons. So I kind of expected that, but it did. It was it was more of a challenge than I expected at times. If um, if uh, Secretary Kerry at the time mm. would have called into his office and yeah. said, "Darren, I, I I need your guidance." on how mm. we should be handling social media right now at this mm. moment with the, with the Arab sure. world crisis. What would you tell yeah. uh, That is also very tough. I, I think, uh, I, well, so I guess there's kind of, there's a few parts of that. I mean, certainly one of them is, if I had been in this situation at the time, I probably would have told him something different than, you know, I am now with the hindsight of, of 10 years and experience. And so it's also kind of seeing how things turned out, I guess, probably if, if, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think the thing that I would have told him is that I think social media is really good for getting the fire burning. Uh, for, it's good for lighting the fire, but it can't really keep it burning. Um, that, you know, you can have these protests and you can, you know, have this kind of, sort of flash in the pan event that can transform a country. But if you don't have the sustained support 
um, you know, in, in the international community, you're probably not going to have, you're not going to have the result that you want. And I think that that's what, that's part of the failings is that, you know, the U S in the end was happier having a dictator, frankly, that was friendly to the U S interests. So, you know, I think that, I think I would have told him that, you know, social media is great for getting things started, but you know, the hard work is, is after that. Um, and I, I don't think the U.S. really put it put into it, which is why we saw the result we did. You know, at the time, there was a lot of talk um, amongst uh, people working in social media, and myself included, uh, that you know the social that social media was a positive um, mm. development. Yeah, was going to democratize information. It was going to import individuals. Um, yeah going to level the playing field between uh, uh, popular interests and uh, mm-hmm. mainstream interests. But what mm-hmm. we have is, you know, the, the so-called wisdom of the crowd has mm-hmm. basically cratered under the pressure of demagogues yeah. and propagandists and troll mm-hmm. farms and organized information operations. Sure. Uh, what was wrong? Yeah, uh, that's a very, very complex. Uh, so I think there's a few things. I think that uh, I think part of it certainly is there's this this typical wave of excitement about a new medium, uh, and I think that a lot of these, you know, feelings have been true of radio and TV and, and now the internet, and usually things end up where there's some good things and some bad things, and it ends up being much more muddled and messy. So I think certainly part of it was just, you know, false hopes on people like you and me um, and also failing to learn from history. Um, I think certainly with the situation of social media, a big part of it was the the things that are good for social media, or at least for the social media companies, I should be more specific, are also things that are good for these you know, demagogues and troll farms and information operations. And namely, it's that for them, all traffic is good traffic. Uh, you know, same with the idea that, you know, all good news is good news, that if people are paying attention, coming back, they're also looking at ads. So I think you see that with the YouTube recommendation algorithm. So there's a bunch of New York Times articles and so on where you essentially go down this spiral of you start with something relatively benign and then it sends you something that's a little more dramatic and a little more dramatic. And then ultimately you're on some neo-Nazi video. Um, I think similar things on Facebook, you know, that the, the most controversial things are the things that get engagement and keep people coming back. So, you know, ultimately the fact that these are profit driven um, without necessarily worrying about what actual content is going through the pipe has helped spread a lot of this. Um, I think these companies are now trying to backtrack from some of that. Um, you know, I think the it's a really open question of how much you're willing to sacrifice a lot of the traffic that they, I mean, these are hugely successful changes for them um, that drove a lot of money. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how much you're willing to pull back from those things that have made them a lot of money. Uh, and instead trying to foster more of this community kind of stuff that they've been talking about for, you know, a decade. Um, you know, the metrics for these companies, um, 
these social media networks, uh, the mm-hmm. metrics that they use to uh, measure success um, is basically right attention, views, yeah. sessions, clicks, <clears throat> and um, if you if you take those metrics into consideration for you know an e-commerce provider like Amazon mm-hmm. or B2B e-commerce provider provider. Mm-hmm. Those uh, same metrics would be seen as fairly soft vanity metrics. In that environment, mm-hmm. the objective is generating, you know, hard revenue. Mm-hmm. You think marketers may eventually become less influenced, less interested in soft metrics, and more interested in uh, actual leads acquired or leads mm-hmm. converted. Or- <laughs> yeah. Sorry, and if, but... if so, would that sort of take the wheel? Um, at some point, does the value of straight attention um, become less interesting to marketers? Yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I think that was certainly one of the challenges we faced when I was at ACC. Um, so just to kind of give a little bit of context. So when I was at ACC, it was, it was right when the company was peaking, um, fortunately, unfortunately. Uh, and our social networks were actually, I would say, pretty successful. So we had more followers than Samsung did at the time and a number of our other competitors. And our levels of engagement were pretty far and above uh, theirs. And it, you know, if you just looked at the number of like comments to post and likes and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, that didn't save the company. Uh, ultimately, you know, it's tough to go up against a marketing machine like Apple or Samsung, especially in a, uh, you know, expensive, market with not necessarily great margins outside of, you know, if you're Apple. Um, and, I, you know, I think a lot of the metrics they were using were things like engagement and views and sentiment and so on. And, you know, again, those are nice, but how many of those actually resulted in, in leads? And we, we did try to improve that. So, you know, we did look at the final and, you know, try to get people to sign up to newsletters and take advantage of coupons and so on. So we would have, you know, a degree of, uh, kind of drawing that line from engagement on social networks down to actual sales. But, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, those are pretty small overall numbers and certainly not enough to sustain a, an enterprise of HTC's size. Uh, I think certainly one of the big challenges that we had was that uh, Facebook at the time in particular, uh, which is where we're putting a lot of our time and effort, they kept coming up with new metrics. Um, and oftentimes you would have these metrics were, which were actually hybrids of other metrics. So you'd have like an engagement rate, which would be a combination of how many times did people view the page, how many times did they uh, like a piece of content. And ultimately when you combine them together like that, it's really, really tough to actually get to the root cause of anything you do. So, you know, was it this video we put up that drove up our engagement rate? Was it the fact that we respond to questions very quickly? You know, did that uh, raise our engagement rate? So in the end, and you know, it, Facebook then came out and said that they'd actually made a bunch of mistakes in their calculations, so your engagement rate actually was very different from what they were saying. So I think that's absolutely true. I think that, um, you know, without seeing very clear results from a lot of these things, um, I think there's going to be a lot more skepticism about investing in a a lot of money into these uh, platforms. Now, at the same time, if you have a lot of money to spend, you can, and it's, you know, these platforms are in many cases still a lot cheaper than, say, a national TV broadcast. So um, I don't know the, you know, I can't speak to numbers or anything like that, but my guess is the breakdown of media spends a lot of these companies. Social media is still, you know, not necessarily as large an amount as, you know, say they're spending on Super Bowl ads. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, even, you know, I saw it in, in just the smaller places that we were doing that, you know, using these metrics were not necessarily leading to business success. I um, was talking to a, uh, a colleague, of, uh, an associate, who works at a large uh, um, online training company. Mm. And they're actually one of the profitable online training companies. And um, they, they're, they introduced a new product that allows their online training to be integrated into other platforms. Okay. And, um, and they're actually getting killed by an upstart. Yeah. The upstart uh, just has a really slick front-end UI and a really slick funnel. Mm -hmm. But their, their product actually isn't as good as my friend's product. Mm -hmm. But he has a really sort of old-school funnel and sort of a mm -hmm. dodgy UI for, for collecting prospects online. Mm-hmm. So even though he's got a better product on the back end, the front end experience is, is so stodgy that they're really struggling. They're really behind sure. the eight ball. And they mm -hmm. recently came their head of marketing and they brought in a new uh, marketing person to you know, reorganize and try to reinvent. But I mean, that doesn't help him because he's on the mm -hmm. sales side. And so those people will mm -hmm. be trying to speed. So yeah. talk to you a little bit about the business case for good UI and the importance sure. of the user experience on the front end before you even consider a product. Does yeah. your experience on the front end translate into any biases against how the service itself will perform? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it's a pretty complex question. I, I think there's an enormous number of factors that can influence that. I mean, you know, not to go back to old standbys, but like Craigslist, for example, now it's getting killed by, by uh, newer competitors, for better or worse, probably better. Um, you know, and Amazon probably doesn't have, in a lot of cases, the most visually appealing UI, um, but I would say the UX at Amazon is, is really solid, and a lot of that's borne out by testing. So I think the, the really important thing is to actually talk to users and get a, a really good sense of what is it about the particular experience that's not working for them. So, you know, you mentioned kind of a few things. You mentioned like the sales funnel is really good at this other competitor. Um, you know, so where exactly is the problem? Like, is it with the sales funnel? Is it when they actually land on the product? Do they have high churn rates or something like that? And I think each of those require different solutions and in some cases, very different solutions. So, um, you know, you can have a great sales funnel that leads to a terrible product and people do sign up and then they churn. Um, or you could have a terrible sales funnel that, um, but a great product and it ends up getting shared kind of more person to person, a little more virally. So I think in any event, the best thing that, that they can do is, is not so much, uh, just call it a UI problem, but actually talk to users and figure out what are, the, the core reasons why they're choosing one product versus another product, I think then you combine that with the quantitative data and you can actually have a, a bigger picture. Um, in my experience, like I think obviously UI uh, was kind of, so UI and UX are sometimes used interchangeably. UI typically refers to more of the visual treatment. So, you know, the color of buttons, um, the typography and things like that. UX is more kind of the, the flows that someone takes through a product. Um, so you can have a great UI and a terrible UX. You can have great UX and terrible UI. 
uh, and you know having one bad but not the other, you know, depending on the type of product, can make or break the product. Ideally, having both is you know that's really good is best. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think it's a lot of it's you know trying to figure out what are the fundamental driving reasons for this, and usually it's a combination. Um, so, yeah, that's probably not a simple answer. Usually, these things are complicated. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how how helpful that was. So, so Amazon has more products uh, on its site than anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, so, is is good UI important to Amazon, or is the, it, would mm -hmm. would best price and and uh, selection be enough? Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think UI and UX is is, I mean, very important to Amazon and, and certainly fundamental. So, I mean, if, if somebody has great prices and enormous selection, but then they can't find products, then, you know, it doesn't really matter. So ultimately, it's all part of that funnel, right? Um, so you have to have good marketing to get people to the site, then you have to have good UX and UI to get them through the site, and then you have to have a good purchasing experience uh, to actually get them to buy. I think part of it, though, is... Um, the, I think a lot of the challenge with saying UI or UX is important is kind of where you draw the line. So, for example, you know, if you ask people what they love about Amazon, they're probably not going to say, oh, you know, the UI is great. And you can argue if it is or not. I mean, it's been thoroughly tested to perform well. Um, is it visually compelling? I think that's more of a debatable question. But my guess is most people say things like, oh, the customer service is really great. Um, you know, the, the fast shipping time is a great selection. How much of those are fundamental to UX? You know, there's UX aspects on all of those. Uh, like a good example would be if customer service has poor, poor internal systems for managing those contacts coming in and they don't have the systems to be able to handle the load, uh, especially around peak times like Christmas and so on, then you're gonna, the, the customer is going to have a bad experience. So there's a lot of different factors that go into that user experience. You know, it's not just kind of the visuals. It's also, you know, are the people well-trained? Do they know how to use the technology that they have at hand? Um, are they going to have a consistent experience between uh, the different people, that they, the different customer service representatives they talk to? So it ends up being a very complicated thing to deliver a good UX. And I think Amazon has done a very good job at delivering overall a pretty consistent UX. And I think it comes down to an enormous number of factors, uh, including a number of the ones that I mentioned around um, having good products, training their people well, having the right metrics, uh, having the right just overall kind of corporate outlook that, you know, we're willing to take a sacrifice in the short term, you know, give this refund to then acquire a customer long term. So it's, I think it's all of those things together. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of a, uh, of a, user, of a user interface? I think it's kind of a combination of what I mentioned before, the qualitative and the quantitative. Um, so typically speaking, um, so just in an Amazon context, and this is not necessarily unique to Amazon or anything, but you know, we have a lot of metrics. Uh, the challenge is to understand why those metrics are happening. So, um, you know, for example, you know, I've launched a product. It has great adoption, but it also has a poor return rate. You know, there could be any number of reasons why that's happening. 
It could be a technical fault, which means that people are getting error messages that we're not tracking for whatever reason. Uh, it could be they don't understand the, the particular tool they're using, um, or it could be something different. So the important thing is to have those metrics first, and that points you in the direction of what to investigate. So you know, if you have like a four-step flow, you can say, okay, well, there's a lot of abandons on step three. Um, you won't necessarily know why, because there might be you know, 10 different fields on step three. But if you go talk to users and you actually see them walking through um, that flow, then you can see where they're having trouble. Um, and I think the, the, the combination of those quantitative and qualitative are hugely important, um, and especially before you launch. Ideally, you don't want to be finding out about these things after you launch. So um, generally speaking, we do fairly rigorous uh, testing before we launch, and it's always amazing when we'll turn up. So, you know, something that I think uh, you know, coming from, you know, the challenge is that I'm, I'm a, you know, most of the people designing these systems are pre-technologically experienced, you know, and savvy. Um, a lot of the users aren't, or they're coming from different contexts or using different technologies that we haven't anticipated, you know, a tablet or something like that, uh, or slow internet connection. So, you know, we've put things in front of people where I'm like, the, how you use this particular widget is super clear. It has a title. It has all the right affordances. And then they struggle with it. Um, and having that video, especially when you're doing like a, a remote session, having that video of them struggling with it is so immensely valuable because then you, and if you get a few of those, you know, if you just study, like you have a user test with five or six people and three of them struggle with it, it's pretty clear evidence that that particular thing needs to be fixed. And that also allows me to go to my management and say, we need to spend our time on these things while these other things, which we thought might've been problems are actually not as important. So having those, the qualitative and quantitative and making sure you're capturing them well is immensely important. We all sign up for things online. We sign up for webinars and we download white papers. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally using business-to-business -business examples of mm -hmm. things we might sign up for in a business context. Um, can mm -hmm. you just sort of uh, riff um, ad hoc on, you know, what makes a good UI with respect to, uh, you know, a sign-up and what makes a bad sure. UI? Uh, so I would say, generally speaking, the less information you can collect, the better. Um, any additional bit of information is additional friction to the user. Um, you know, it's things that they might have to go find. It's things that they have to think about, um, how they would, you know, answer something or, or choose between multiple choices. Uh, it's uh, things that they may be not comfortable providing. So, you know, probably the best thing is to have as minimal friction as possible while also still getting the information that you need to then have them as a customer. So, um, I think that's really important. I think another certainly important part is making sure you have it at the right place um, and have the right expectations around it. So, you know, going back to your example of white papers, oftentimes an email address, uh, you'll be required to give an email address to get that white paper. Um, my understanding is pretty often people put in fake ones or, um, or that might also be too much friction at that point. So I think timing it and having the right information is really important. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities for getting minimal information first, getting them into the system and then having an onboarding process because 
at that point, they're already invested. They're already seeing the promise of this thing. Uh, so, for example, if you need a, you know, a credit card, maybe you don't need that at the initial sign-up. You, know, you just get their username and password and email address. Uh, and then once they're into the system, they're already invested. They're already seeing sort of the promise of what you're offering. Um, then you ask for the email address, uh, the, the credit card. It's going to depend a lot on your particular needs, though. Like the risk there is that, you know, you get a lot of people who sign up to kick the tires, but they never provide a credit card. So that, you know, can increase customer support costs. So it's going to vary a lot. But, um, you know, ultimately thinking about that friction and where it's placed um, is, is probably the most important thing. And then whatever, I mean, I think this is part of what Amazon focuses on relentlessly, which is uh, how can we reduce friction for our customers? So if you think about, you know, early on in Amazon's history, what were the main friction points? Well, you know, shipping was a big one. So, um, you know, I don't want to have to wait seven days to get my thing when I can just go down to the local store and get it, you know, in 20 minutes. Um, so, you know, if you look at a lot of things that Amazon has tried to do, so reducing it to two days and then reducing it to one day, uh, reducing it to a single day in a lot of big cities. So it's identifying those friction points and eliminating those as much as you can uh, to help your customers get access and start paying for your product. So um, we, we, we spend most of our time talking about uh, the UI that we provide to customers. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, at a company like Amazon, it's not like uh, someone orders something and you get an email that says, hey, here's what they ordered, and print mm -hmm. it out and, and fulfill it, right? There's a back-end UI that the employees mm -hmm. use as well. Yeah. So uh, how important and how focused should companies be on the back end of their UI mm -hmm. that their employees use? Sure. I think um, I think it's going to depend a ton on the company and the resources they have and, and what their goals are. Um, I, I guess the main thought I would have is that there are enormous risks to ignoring the backend UI. Um, and this is certainly true of, so, you know, obviously looking at Amazon, you know, making sure that we deliver accurately all the packages that we're sending out depends on a lot of people. Um, you know, it's not all, you know, in some cases it might be automated, in some cases it's not. But ultimately, you know, the preventing mistakes, uh, you know, at the warehouse, for example, uh, or in customer service requests is really important. And if you have a poor UI, it's going to increase the risk that you're going to get some of those transactions wrong. Um, I think it also influences things like uh, employee retention. You know, if they're having to um, use outdated technologies that increase their effort unnecessarily without any additional benefit and also don't help them reach their goals that have been set by their management, um, you know, that's going to significantly impact their the quality of the work that they do. So, I think it's really important. Uh, I think the details of it, though, depend a ton on, on you know, the particular company. So, you know, if you're delivering for internal users, um, it also means that you're not necessarily spending those resources as directly on, on external customers. So, you know, I think it's going to be probably always true in most organizations that internal tools will never be as good as external tools. Um, that may or may not be a bad thing, depending on the company. You know, I think one other thing that we're thinking about, too, is, um, probably not for most companies, but I think Amazon has done a really interesting job of 
taking their internal tools and then launching them publicly. I mean, that's where AWS came from, um, was taking, you know, historically, it was going back a ways. It's obviously not this anymore, but, um, you know, so that became then a strategic advantage where Amazon could not just get paid for kind of the front end of what they build, the direct customer engagement, but it also could get paid for the back end that they're building as well. Um, not every company is going to be able to exploit that. I think some companies have done that in interesting ways. Um, but so there's also a potential business benefit there as well. Um, over the years, I've spec'd pretty much every CRM for one company or another, <clears throat> and I've never in my career found a client who's 100% happy with a CRM. Yep. There, you, people complain about you know how difficult they are to use, mm-hmm. yet it's yep. such a huge industry. Does that mm-hmm. does that surprise you that those that that the CRMs haven't become mm-hmm. as easy to use as as the uh, <clears throat> consumer technology that has taken off? Um, Facebook, Twitter, yeah. LinkedIn. Sure. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm all that surprised for a number of reasons. Uh, certainly one of them is that I think that, um, you know, consumer tools like Facebook and Twitter and so on, you know, there's just a lot of money in growing very quickly for those. So it's going to attract a lot of investment. Um, I think things like a CRM and B2B tools and so on, you know, there's certainly tons of money to be made. Um, but I don't think, I think it's tougher to get that exponential growth. Um, so I think that's, there's some limit, uh, there. Uh, I think the other thing too, is that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so on, they're inherently not necessarily that complex. And I think it's, you know, they're mass market tools. So the interface has to be essentially mass market and not quite as complicated. Whereas with CRM tools, they can be very, they can be relatively simple or they can be extraordinarily complex. Uh, so I think that's also the challenge, which is, you know, how you calibrate that. Um, you know, the CRM tool that, you know, a division of Amazon is going to use compared to the CRM tool your local Yogio studio is going to need are basically uh, comp- totally different products. I mean, they're, they might be under the same banner, but they're going to be, the, the needs and scale are just astronomically different. So I think the, the challenge is, um, when when tools are built expecting kind of mass adoption when they don't really solve anybody's needs well. So I think we're starting to see, especially in the last several years, a lot more niche products. Um, you know, I look at just people that I know and, you know, they started niche products like uh, scheduling for hairdressers and so on. And they've, they've built small, successful businesses. I think the challenge is, especially when you start getting seed money and investment money, the expectation is that you got to grow really big and you know those niches are not going to necessarily scale so then you know they try to branch out and then their kind of core benefit gets diluted because you know again the needs of a crm tool for a hairdresser is going to be different than a crm tool for a yoga studio so i think as they add complexity it it makes them tougher to use um and even again even just one yoga studio in one city is going to be different from a yoga studio in suburbia. So there might be enough overlap that they can both use the same tool, but there's going to be differences. Um, whereas for the most part on Facebook, if you want to share a photo, there's not going to be a ton of ways that you need to do that. 
you know, the usage for those is going to be fairly similar across the board. So I think those are some of the challenges and part of the reason why a lot of these more complex, especially B2B tools, they're just harder to make and the needs are just very different. Darren, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this interview. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I hope it was useful. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.